Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. On October 19, 2013, I was a speaker and sponsor of the Nullify Now Symposium in Raleigh, North Carolina. One of the speakers at that symposium was noted author Publius Hulda, a retired litigation attorney who now lives in Tennessee. Before becoming a lawyer, she received a degree in philosophy specializing in the philosophy of political systems and theories of knowledge. Ms. Hulda has written extensively about the meaning and intent of the authors of the U.S. Constitution. She uses original writings of the Framers, the Federalist Papers, and other original documents as proof. She believes that federal judges and politicians routinely ignore our Constitution, substituting their own personal opinions and beliefs for those of the framers. Her hope is that teaching citizens our founding principles will lead to a restoration of our constitutional republic. At the Nullify Now Symposium, I had the pleasure of interviewing Publius Hulda for Freedom Forum Radio. That interview begins today. I was also able to record her speech at the Nullify Now Symposium. That speech will air on Freedom Forum Radio over the next several weeks. This is a unique opportunity to hear the thoughts and words of a dynamic defender of the Constitution and the natural law rights that it was written to protect and secure. Here is my interview with Publius Hulda for Freedom Forum Radio. I'm here with Ms. Publius Hulda, and I'm very, very pleased to be with you. My pleasure. You are a lawyer, and so you uh, you discuss things from a legal perspective. Yes. And as well as, I'm sure, from a historical perspective. And we've listened to a lot of speeches today here at Nullify Now about the historical justification for nullification. We know from our history 
that our founding fathers really believed that nullification was not only valid, but was demanded of the citizens and of the states as sovereign beings and sovereign entities. That we were obligated when the general government, as they called it, or the central government, when they enacted legislation that was not constitutional. So, nowadays, we are in a situation that's similar where there's a lot of legislation that is unconstitutional. The federal government is constantly attempting to do things that are completely unconstitutional. They're rewriting, ignoring, circumventing the Constitution. And I think it would be a good time if we could practice nullification in the states. Yes. But state legislators are notoriously unwilling to do that. And what I wanted you to discuss with my listeners is, what are the arguments in favor of nullification, and what do you say to people who deny the constitutionality of nullification? Basically, the problem is this. About a hundred years ago, lawyers decided that the Constitution means what the judges say it means. It was Charles Evans Hughes, who later became U.S. Supreme Court Justice, who said this about 100 years ago. The problem is that law students have been told for a very long time that the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means. The Constitution is no longer seen as having a fixed objective meaning which is explained by the Federalist Papers, but as an evolving document, the meaning of which changes as the judges on the U.S. Supreme Court change. This is firmly fixed in the mindsets of many of our state legislators who are law school graduates. It's indoctrination. Randy Barnett is one of the major nullification deniers in this country. He is a law professor at Georgetown University. He has managed to convince a great many state legislators, including some from my state in Tennessee, that nullification is unlawful, that James Madison was against it, and in order to say that James Madison is against nullification, Randy Barnett had to misrepresent what James Madison said in his report of 1799-1800 to the Virginia legislature on, nullifi- on, the, on the Virginia resolutions of 1798. He just misrepresented it. But state legislators don't read the original source documents for themselves. They take the easy way out. They just repeat what somebody else has said. So they latch on to what Randy Barnett said, and they just repeat it. No thought involved. No thought involved. Another problem is uh, with the so-called South Carolina nullification crisis of 1832. South Carolina wanted to nullify the Tariff Act of 1828, The problem with nullifying that act 
is that Congress has specific authority to impose tariffs on imports. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. So South Carolina wanted to nullify a constitutional law. So James Madison wrote um, a very long work, Notes on Nullification, in 1834, where he explained that you can't nullify a constitutional law, that Congress has delegated authority to impose tariffs on imports. And so South Carolina couldn't nullify it. But some so-called scholars like Matthew Spaulding at Heritage Foundation, uh, David Barton of Wall Builders, understand that James Madison opposed South Carolina's doctrine of nullification. And instead of looking under the surface to see that, oh, South Carolina wanted to nullify a constitutional law, they just handle this in a very shallow fashion and say, James Madison was vehemently opposed to nullification. So our so-called experts of today are ignorant. They're deliberately misrepresenting what Madison said, or they are just ignorantly regurgitating what they've heard other people say. You know, it's so easy to be an expert if you just regurgitate what somebody else said and pretend that you know all about it. Well, you've mentioned something that I think is a very important point for my listeners to understand. And that is that if you go back constantly in your decisions to original source material, you are more likely to have decisions that are based upon the original principles. Yes. It reminds me of that children's game where you line the children up. I think it's called telephone. You say that you give one sentence to the to the first child and the children pass it along child after child after child after child and when you get to the end of the row the message is completely different than what it started off as. So when you make legal decisions, court decisions not based on the Constitution It's as if you've cut the mooring lines and the boat is drifting out into the middle of the bay. Precisely. And so that is really what you're talking about here, is that we are listening to judges' decisions that are not based on the Constitution, but sort of what, well, he said this in 1800, and she said that in 1840, and this one said that in 1860, and whatever. And that obviously gives us some of the ridiculous decisions that the Supreme Court has undertaken. Yes. Um, In the late 1800s, the philosophy of pragmatism infected America. Pragmatism teaches that there are no fixed principles. Uh, Truth is not a fixed concept. What's true for you may not be true for me, and what's true for me today may not be true for me tomorrow. So with the, when, when the American people embraced the philosophy of pragmatism, they dispensed with the concept of fixed principles. 
So this was really the beginning of the abandonment of the Federalist Papers as being the authoritative commentary on the original intent of the Constitution. And we began to see, lawyers began to see the Constitution as an evolving document. See, uh, Charles Darwin's evolution was brought in to law. And so law was now seen to be something which evolves and changes with changing social conditions. The law evolves. The Constitution evolves. We have to take a quick commercial break here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. More right after the break. Of course, that may work for Charles Darwin. But the problem with that is, is that if you have a contract between individuals or if you have a contract between sovereign states and a federal authority. Oh, um, uh, excuse me for interrupting. This is very important. Please. The federal government is not a party to the compact. It is merely the creature of the compact. I was and getting to as, that. Oh. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I'm that's sorry. a huge point. Yeah. And as the creature, it is completely subject to the terms of the compact the sovereign states made with each other. And, that's that, and that really is the point, is that you cannot have an evolving contract because the child of the contract wants to change it. Yes. I think that's what you're talking yes. about. Because we know that nullification has, has been tried in the past in valid ways. Obviously, the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions were valid reasons yes. to do that. Do you, why do you think they did not succeed? Well, um, nullification is most effective when an unconstitutional act gives an order that the states or the people can refuse to obey. For example, Jim Crow laws which said, okay, black people, you have to sit in the back of the bus. That was easily nullified because the black people could say, no, we won't obey. When the Supreme Court, starting in 1962, started unlawfully banning prayer in the public schools and ordered the states to remove the Ten Commandments from the, from the public schools. That was an uncon those were unconstitutional Supreme Court opinions because the federal government has no authority to interfere in the public schools. The states should have nullified them by directing their schools to ignore the Supreme Court opinions. In the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, those acts purported to grant dictatorial powers to the president over aliens and seditious words. The states couldn't disobey the laws because they were directed to the powers of the president. So they had to find other ways to um, impede, obstruct, sabotage the operation of the acts. I don't know why other states didn't join on to the 
Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. You know, some people say that the fact that they were not successful is another indication that nullification is invalid. I disagree with that. Right. And I disagree with it because what I've read is that they did not succeed for political reasons. The northern states would not support the southern states in that effort. And yet, a mere decade later, when Jefferson wanted to pass the embargo against the Tripoli pirates, it was the northern states that tried to nullify the embargo because it was hurting their trade. They were, you know, they had the whaling boats and things like that. So I think it's right or wrong, as, as, and you probably would agree, that when things like this fail for political reasons, it doesn't mean that the principle is not correct. It's just that politics got in the way of principle. That is true. Do you have anything else to say about nullification? Only that um, the crisis facing our country today is this. Uh, we basically have two options. We have to either nullify unconstitutional acts of the federal government, resist them, obstruct them, impede them. The option which is being proposed to us by nullification deniers is an Article V convention. They say the purpose of the Article V Convention is to propose amendments because since the federal government doesn't obey the original Constitution, they will, of course, obey the amendments. But my fear is that this is all a sham, a subterfuge. What many of these um, proponents of an Article V Convention really want is a new constitution and if they form if they draft a new constitution it will have its own new method of ratification the new constitution doesn't have to provide that it will be submitted to the states for ratification the new constitution can provide that it will become ratified by majority vote in Congress. It is very easy for an Article V convention to run away and impose on us a new constitution. We must at all cost not allow an Article V convention to take place. I agree with you 110%. Uh, there is no control over an Article V constitutional convention. Right. You can, you can form that convention with a specific agenda, but the, the convention, once it begins, can adopt any agenda that it wants. That is true. Which is what really happened when we wrote our Constitution. Yes. Uh, that's, that really was, it would, wasn't an Article V constitution. We didn't have an Article V but it was it the, was a runaway it was uh, a runaway the, uh, the resolution passed by the um, a continental congress oh, under the articles of confederation was very clear that the purpose of that convention was merely to propose amendments to the articles of uh, confederation not completely redo not them to which is it. which is really what happened but there's a big difference at that convention the federal convention of 1787 
we had moral and intellectual luminaries. We had George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, uh, Benjamin Franklin, luminaries. We don't have people like that today. Well, the important point is that we don't have people like that today who would be at an Article 5 that, Constitutional that Convention. Correct. The people who would be at that convention would be those who wish to subterfuge. By subterfuge, yes. they, wish to, they wish to do away with the natural law rights yes. that are guaranteed to be protected and secured by the Constitution. Correct. I'm glad we agree. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that wasn't bad. You know, you're fun. I could get used to talking. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. (laughs) 